So our mission is just that, how, helping our oceans through technology. That's a very broad mission. Uh, and so the next step was trying to kind of unpack that a bit. Okay, so we've got technology, we've got, we've got the oceans. What are, what are the things we can do where we can start to get some, get some runs on the board quickly? Because we don't want to be you know, developing something that's going to be incredibly expensive or uh, incredibly time-consuming. The other thing that kind of came along was this maker movement, low-cost, you know, electronic, hobby electronics like, you know, the Raspberry Pi and, and the ESP826 chips, you know, like a, uh, and of course you've got the same technology in a high-end smartphone that you can buy for about 10 bucks in a Raspberry Pi or, yeah. or 30 bucks for the Pi Raspberry, you know. Um, Pi Zero is $7, $5. So we realised that there's an opportunity now to develop ocean monitoring technology at a much, much lower cost than has ever been done before. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customised explorative research on key consumer markets, customers and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behaviour change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Alan Noble, founder of OzOcean. Alan is a proud entrepreneur and technology engineer, heading to Tokyo, straight out of uni, then on to California, before heading home to Australia many years later with his family to work with a startup, creating his own, and eventually giving in to the wooing of Google to take up the role of overseeing the growth of the Sydney Engineering Centre from 20 engineers to over 650 in his 11 years. In early 2017, Alan founded OzOcean, a not-for-profit organisation with a mission of developing and applying technology to learn more about our oceans. You can learn more about OzOcean at www.ozocean.org. A most fascinating discussion about tech to Japanese culture, to Alan's long-time love of scuba diving and why it is oh so important for the community to understand what wonderment exists beneath the surface of our oceans. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Thank you so much for joining us today, Alan. I'm going to start off with a question I've asked in the last few interviews just to start it off and then we'll, kind of, we'll go on with a, me- a meandering kind of discussion over the next I don't know, hour or so maybe. Uh, what does curiosity mean to you? Big, oh. big word, simple answer. Yeah. Well, curiosity is about never accepting that you know enough. Yeah. And there's really always more to learn and I think you can interpret that, you know, both in terms of one's, you know, personal relationship with the world around them, but yeah. also, um, you know, professionally and uh, from a career standpoint. I mean, curiosity really drives everything. Curiosity is at the heart of science. Curiosity is at the heart of innovation. Yeah. It it really is, uh, you know, important to really yeah. most things we do. Do you see a good example or some of the best examples of 
uh, curiosity at work, the advances that have come from curiosity in your your world? Yeah, I think organisations that actually encourage um, uh, their you know their employee or their um, their their, um, uh, their people to be curious uh, have a inherently huge advantage over other organisations. So there are a lot of examples of organisations that have tried to put a bit of structure around that. I spent quite a bit of time at Google where they've. Uh, they've got this notion called 20% time where they encourage mm. employees to spend 20% of their time kind of pursuing their own curiosity. So that's one approach. But there are other organizations that will set aside a certain amount of time per year or per month uh, to essentially, you know, just encourage people to kind of, yeah, pursue their dreams. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's, uh, that's certainly – I think that's certainly something that um, can be done. Um, but I think if you can actually encourage uh, people to be curious all of the time, not just for twenty percent of the time, you know that's obviously even more more powerful. And um, I think um, it's finding the balance between, I guess, the needs of the business or the needs of the organisation, but also appealing to the curiosity of you know your your people uh, and finding that balance. Yeah. Okay. So so concepts like twenty percent time fundamentally comes back to curiosity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and finding better solutions and exploring. And I mean, I, it doesn't matter what discipline you're in or, you know, you're inherently going to be more motivated if you're pursuing things that you personally are, are curious about or, or interested in or yeah. excited about. And, and, and it's tapping into that, you know, um, I guess the uh, excitement uh, to pursue an idea, to be curious. And uh, um, so finding mechanisms to do that is really, really important. Yeah, that's great. So in all these interviews, we go right back to the start and we ask what we were like as an eight-year-old boy. Well, uh, as an eight-year-old, uh, I was, uh, I'd, <laughs> I'd been uh, diagnosed as a, as a celiac, and, uh, which was a pretty horrible diagnosis, but uh, it turns out I, I wasn't a celiac. Uh, I, was, um, I had a severe gluten intolerance, which... But why am I telling you this? Well, um, I was really um, struggling with my difference. I was the only kid in school who couldn't go eat at the tuck shop. I couldn't just go grab a pie or a pasty. I mean, yeah. uh, I had to bring in my special gluten-free bread and all that, all that nonsense. Uh, so a lot of people said, wow, you were gluten intolerant way ahead of yeah. way, <laughs> way ahead of the times. I said, yeah, but I really am gluten intolerant. But uh, I guess um, what it, it made me realise that being different is okay. Yeah, okay. I was very, I was very different in that very funny kind of uh, you know almost kind of clinical sense. Yeah. Uh, so I got very used to just you know I had a special um, uh, permission slip to leave the school campus. This is primary school, obviously, so I could leave um, campus and go down to the street uh, because if I needed to get something. Um, that the tuck shop didn't have, for example. Yeah, okay. And so in, in, in some sense I developed, I guess, a little bit more independence. And, um, but on the other hand, you know, I felt, yeah, it was funny, being a bit defined by the fact that I was, had this kind of you know, medical condition. Um, but it, it made me realise that you shouldn't really dwell too much on what other people think about you. Yeah. So I learned that lesson really Did early. You... I learned that lesson probably even before I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> Did you come... Um easily embrace your uniqueness was it an easy thing to do or were you kind of forced to do that i think yeah i think i was young enough that i didn't have a choice and it was just okay i'm a bit different from everyone else i i can't eat what everyone else eats so i'm just gonna have to deal with it Mm. and um 
and so I didn't really have too much time to dwell on it. I just, it just I mean, at times I, I probably felt, oh, I did feel at times that, you know, I didn't like being different. Yeah. Um, but I think as I grew older, I realized actually, you know, as Apple says, think different. Mm. You know, actually being different is actually good. Did that different. come from your parents? Did your parents sort of I, think I, it was My okay parents were super supportive, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, my mum would be making, you know, home baking, special bread and stuff yeah. just for me. So, yeah, that was all, I guess, uh, certainly I was strongly supported. Um, but I think at the, it, it comes from you too. At a point, you have to realise that this is who I am and, uh, um, you know, I'm not necessarily the same as everyone else. I mean, the truth is... Everyone is different for everyone else, but not it. But a lot of That's people don't right. realise it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they don't necessarily perhaps revel in the fact that they're different. And in fact, a lot of uh, a lot of young people perhaps even struggle with those differences. So, um, I I just uh, realised early on that mm, you know a difference is good, and you know it forces you to do things a bit differently, and dare I say, think differently. And um, I probably um, I probably developed a thick skin early in life. Um, and that's a double-edged sword. Which, which manifests like what? Like, so as it, I, didn't, I didn't care what people said or yeah. thought about me. Okay. And I, you know, it's, that's tough, uh, you know, but that was kind of my, my, um, my response mechanism. Mm. But, I, but uh, I think having a bit of a thick skin is quite useful in life. I mean, it's like at the, the most successful entrepreneurs I've seen it's finding the right balance between someone who's a little bit thick-skinned, a little bit stubborn, but not so much so that they don't respond to advice and mentorship. It, it is you've got to find the balance. I mean, obviously, if you're extremely stubborn, you're probably doomed because you're never going to listen to anyone else. But you do need to have a certain amount of, look, I don't care what the rest of the world thinks. I've got this vision. I've got this idea, and I'm just going to do it because I know deep down that's what I want to do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but so confident in your, your your perspective. I guess I became fairly confident yeah. as a result of that. And were you studious as a child? Yes, I, I was. Uh, I wanted to be athletic, but I was a better student. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did, I did a lot of basketball and a lot of tennis, so I, I wasn't completely hopeless athletically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was. I would. You know, um, I probably um, prided myself more you know, on on in the. Um, uh, prime myself more on the academic accomplishments. So, what sort yeah. of subjects did you enjoy the most? Oh, science and maths. Yeah. You know, I was I was a you know science geek from an early age, yeah. and um, I've I've always loved science. And um, and in high school, you know, I was your classic physics, chemistry, you know, maths one and two. They don't call it maths one and two anymore, but you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was very fortunate in that my maths teacher in uh, high school um, was had an interest in programming, which was in an era when it was quite unheard of to do any kind of software mm. development in school. And and he uh, he um, introduced us to uh, programming uh, in some after school uh, classes, and uh, and uh, I, I basically did, developed a, a love of um, coding and software ever since. Yeah. In a very early age. So, where, where, what did you get on reflection? What did you get out of that early start in science and maths and coding? And what, what did you like about it? I think uh, it helped. I think with okay, so science, um, science is about, uh, I guess, feeling or, or developing and understanding the world around us 
of course, it's never complete. I think one of the things you learn about science is science is, is a work in progress. But at least it provides uh, a structure for understanding the world around us. And so I, I love that about science uh, and the, sci- the scientific method, doing experiments. I, I still have very, very fond memories of just, you know, you'd look back and laugh right now, but like it, designing experiments to measure the, the speed of sound, for example, yeah, okay. um, knowing that actually you could do that in high school in junior high school even, mm. and you didn't have to be a physicist to do that. So if I, felt, I felt like science not only provided um, the basis for our understanding of the world and the universe around us, but it also gave us the tools to actually test things yeah. uh, and test things quantitatively. Um, maths, on the other hand, really just um, opened up, I guess, my, my understanding of how to uh, deal, uh, how to... Um, express relationships uh, um, you know in, in the world around us so and then of course coding kind of flowed from that coding is the ability to take you know abstract mm-hmm. you know abstract ideas and then codify them down into something um, uh, an implementation yeah. something uh, tangible I mean you can't cannot touch the code but the code can actually do real things the, yeah. the code can actually um, Make predictions in one of the early things. I was um, young enough to enjoy the uh, Apollo Eleven lunar landing, you know, in real time, yeah. which, by the way, was incredibly influential. I think for any kid yeah. that saw Apollo Eleven land on the moon, it was just so exciting. Uh, so I remember one of my first coding projects was to write a lunar lander simulator, which was great because it kind of pulled together, you know, what I knew about physics and what I knew about maths and what I knew about coding. So, um, yeah, I mean. For me, uh, I just found these subjects just to be both interesting but also really important tools for just, you know, doing things yeah. and understanding things. Yeah. And it, was, it sounds like it was a curiosity around those subjects more so than if I go well at these subjects, I'll get a job out of, out of, out of school. It, 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 exactly. Yeah. I, I never thought what I was going to do. I, I didn't think about what I was going to do until year 12. Yeah. I mean, I, know, I, I knew I liked maths and physics and, uh, and chemistry. And also I had a strong love of the Japanese language. I majored in – I did Japanese all through uh, high school and continued in university. So yeah. I had that kind of very different – and I did a minor in Japanese while I was doing my engineering studies. And was that similar that you were interested in Japanese? Just interested in – I love the language. I love the fact that it's a, you know, it's a unique writing system. It's a blend of, you know – kanji from the Han yeah. writing system and of course their own native uh, phonetic the kana um, it's just a it's a beautiful language but I also fell in love with uh, with Japanese culture early yeah. on too I just think it's a fascinating culture could spend the entire podcast talking about that but that yeah. maybe another time um, so yeah it was just yeah my curiosity um, it was kind of culture driven um, interest and that kind of helped me uh, drove my language interest as well they kind of played off each other I think it's really hard to understand a culture if you don't understand the language, actually. Yeah, if you cannot okay. read, actually, really in that language, for example, uh, in general. Um, but uh, so, yeah, the, um, I thought about I – th- I stumbled across engineering in, in – it might have been late year 11, early year 12. I thought, mm, I guess I'm going to do engineering because I, I, that seems to be where everything's So you've been studying, studying the right subjects that you're interested in and – um, and I'm assuming you were getting good grades because you're interested in it and you had an aptitude for it. Yeah, then, yeah. And, and uh, so, you know, I mean, I had the grades. I, I could have pretty much done whatever I wanted to do. I had friends going off and doing medicine and I just thought, oh, 
That doesn't sound very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? Doctors do amazing things and, and save people's lives, but I looked at it and I thought, oh, it's just not something I'm interested in. Mm. And uh, I was already decided that I wanted to, to create things and design and build. And, and so what en- sort of engineering did you Well, um, I do. gravitated quite quickly towards electronic engineering, um, although I still had, as I mentioned, I had that strong interest in software I didn't quite have the courage of my convictions to study computer science. Computer science seemed a little bit newfangled. Mm. Well, it probably was a little bit uh, back then in the early 80s. I mean, uh, so I decided, look, I'll study electrical and electronic engineering, but I'll, I'll, I'll do some software to, uh, engineering uh, as I go. And uh, what was your expectation being in, say, I'm assuming year 11, year 12, of what that might mean post-uni? Oh, I expected there'd be jobs for engineers. You know, I wasn't. I've never worried about where I was going to work next. I just yeah. even now I don't worry. I've always done what I felt like I, what I felt like I needed to do, mm-hmm. uh, what what seemed to make the most sense for me. Uh, I was already thinking, well, I want to study Japanese. Uh, I want to keep that going. Uh, the Faculty of Engineering took a very dim view of it. They said we've never have a, we've never had a student do a full load of engineering and and Japanese or any language can't be done i said well watch me so for the next three years i i did an overload mm. uh so i was 25 percent overload in first year uni 33 percent overload in the second year and a 50 percent overload in the third year at yeah, that yeah. point i said so okay, you must have been quite a rather confident i was working yourself. pretty hard yeah. uh but i just didn't want to give up the japanese uh, in the final year of engineering i i reluctantly didn't do any japanese <laughs> that was all engineering was that about understanding the language or the culture of japan both. I, I love the language, uh, but uh, it uh, it opened up my understanding of. And I, um, in year eleven, I'd been an exchange student as well, just a three month yeah. summer exchange, which had fostered that interest. And uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I did it again. I don't think anyone would, any sane person would would overload a, an engineering course it's already, unless it's already had, a largely full time. Yeah, well, anyways, un- unless you had a strong interest in the subject, which I did. Um, but I had in the back of my mind, I was thinking, gee, I want to go work in Japan as an engineer. Okay. So I was starting to get motivated. It yeah. motivated me in that direction. Didn't know. And clearly, they, certainly at that time, there was a conversation around Japan being leaders in yeah. electronics and that. Absolutely. And uh, it, it was. And, uh, and in fact, I ended up doing that when I graduated. I, as soon as I did, I hopped on a plane, went to, went to Tokyo, and I lived there for almost four years. Um, it turns out um, my time in Japan was apart from the fact that <clears throat> it was a great time to kind of hone my my language skills and my my knowledge of Japanese culture uh, but it also is where I had started to develop this interest in artificial intelligence okay and that uh, was very much it's interesting how a lot of great ideas um, are at the intersections of different disciplines. You must encounter this mm-hmm. in, in your That's own right. work exactly. a lot too, where where you, you take different, perhaps ostensibly different disciplines, and when you bring them together, magic happens. Mm. So here I was, I was an electronics engineer, but it turns out there were more jobs for software developers, programmers. Yeah, okay. So I was programming. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> But I also was making a bit of extra money translating Japanese. I would translate from Japanese to English at night, so I was moonlighting. Yeah, okay. 
Turns out you can make a lot more money doing technical translations and programming in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> if you get good at, I got very good at doing technical translations. I would translate medical papers or scientific papers. Right, okay. Um, and there was pretty good money in it. But what I realized was um, it's still a very uh, laborious, you know, time-consuming process. So I, I ended up joining a, a translation company. Um, so I, I quit my job as a programmer and I was doing translation full-time. Um, I was still doing a bit of moonlighting just for some of the more interesting stuff, you yeah. know, biotech papers and stuff. But then um, the company got wind of the fact that I could code and there were a couple of other um, employees who could code and they said, why don't you take a bit of time and see if you can um, automate some of this translation? So this is a, yeah, this wow, idea okay. that you could automate. Now, so just, what year around about are we talking 1982, about? long time ago. Yeah, wow. Um, okay. And uh, it was just an idea. I thought, well... Um, I'll have a go at it. I, I obviously didn't – I had an electronic engineering background, didn't have a software or computer science background, but I knew how to code. So we, we, spent, um, we spent the better part of a year dabbling in um, uh, how we might, uh, you know, do what's now called machine translation. Back then for a while it was called automatic translation, AI-based translation. I have to say, in retrospect, it was a complete and utter failure. Um, we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, we tried all kinds of techniques, but um, – um, it wasn't very good. We could do kind of look up table things. We could we could kind of find words in a document and map them into their English words, but it wouldn't resemble a translation. It would to someone who had a rough idea what the topic was. It might make some sense to most people. It was gibberish. I'm assuming misordered sentences almost. Misordered sentences, ungrammatical. Um, you know, it, it would only be useful as a very very rough starting point if it was a scientific paper in Japanese and say some a scientific uh, a reader in English just wanted to have the gist of what the paper was about it might be good enough um, but uh, we gave up on it or I should say my employer gave up on it <laughs> I went back to just doing manual they invested in your curiosity and didn't necessarily yeah but it tweaked my curiosity yeah, okay. so I got I became very interested in artificial intelligence uh, AI and uh, and so um, it prompted me to apply to go to grad school and that took me to Stanford University in California. So that okay. kind of that going to Japan because I was interested in Japanese, and 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 then doing Japanese translation first manually, and then that brief foray into automatic translation, albeit a failure, eventually all kind of came together in this idea that I should go study AI. Mm. And you can't predict that. It sounds like you, you, they're, they're no, I couldn't have predicted seemingly, that. <laughs> seemingly random sort of situation. It was totally <laughs> random. I mean, the other thing is, I met some, I met some, I had some good mates who were from California. It seemed like all the interesting, this is all the interesting folks I met in um, uh, in, in Tokyo or Japan. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them seem to come from California. I said, yeah, what is yeah. this place, California? You know, there's so many. I just kept meeting interesting people. So I, was, I mean, back in the old days when we had a Rolodex, you know, uh, I was just writing. Um, you know, uh, names and names. So I had a, I had a pretty good list of folks who lived in San Francisco yeah, and right. LA, and so I thought, okay, time to follow up on that. So I was, I, I guess, I'd substituted that interest in Japan for this uh, this kind of new interest in AI, but also specifically, I was interested in, I was starting to get a bit interested in the US and, and California in particular. So it took me to California, where I lived for sixteen years. So yeah, yeah. So, in, and what were you doing in California? What were you well, uh, first couple of years, I was uh, um, I was a grad student at Stanford, uh, and then um, when I graduated, I so Stanford's um, basically in the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, so it's just basically between San Francisco and San Jose, 
um, San Francisco Bay Area, as they say, and uh, it was just a world of opportunities, startups on every corner. Um, I I needed a green card because I was I'd come along on a student visa yeah. and I needed to get permanent residency, so I I chose to work for a large employer, not a startup, so I could get my green card. All of my friends went into startups. I didn't even know what a startup was hardly. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, that's interesting. They, um, I'm assuming the the, the 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 term startup wasn't. Well, it was common. certainly. I would say in in 1986 in Australia, no one knew what a startup was. But in Silicon Valley, so it's now 1986. I'm in Japan. Uh, sorry, in in <laughs> Silicon Valley, I've left Japan, um, and I graduated from Stanford in '88, and. Uh, I, I worked for a fantastic company, uh, a multinational called Schlumberger, and they created all kinds of opportunities for me, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. But I was very envious of all of my my mates off doing tech startups. Some of them, in the time I was at Schlumberger, which was eight years, some of them had done you know two or three startups. Right. Wow. And uh, so I was determined that I too was going to do a startup. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and because you sensed that they were making more progress, or or well. Uh, some of them weren't necessarily succeeding all the time, but they were clearly having a lot of fun. They were, yeah. they were again, following their curiosity. And, uh, and it's not to say – I mean, I, you know, uh, I felt that I was missing something. So um, in, um, in, in, uh, I, in, in the late 80s, uh, I started uh, working – um, on my own kind of startup idea. I, and then eventually I told my boss I needed to take a sabbatical. I'd accumulate a little bit of annual leave and a little bit of... Uh, and so I just took some time off to kind of kick the tyres uh, and explore this idea. And then I decided, yep, this is what I want to pursue. So with a couple of other... With one other colleague from Schlumberger and another colleague from another tech company down the street, we, we founded a company, three of us, and uh, that was the next phase. Doing what? It was an internet startup, which was all the rage yeah. um, back then. So uh, it's ni- now it's um, 1996, and um, we had this very simple idea. Now, the internet was exploding in terms of content. There were new websites coming online, you know, every 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 few minutes, uh, and it was very hard to keep track of this explosion of information. Search engines back then weren't very good. I mean, Google only just barely existed in 1996. You had these really horrible search engines like, you know, Lycos and AltaVista. But even the search engines were not proactively finding information you cared about. So our idea was let's provide a very simple notification tool so our users can come to our website and register their interests. Say I'm interested in market research um, about electric vehicles, something very specific. We will then email them with a report, we'll find we'll go out there and essentially um, find interesting things and and provide it back to them in email form. Yeah. Uh, and if, you could also go to a specific website and say, um, notify me when this website changes. Kind of. So we okay. developed essentially the world's first notification yeah. server. Okay. Um, that company was called Netmind, and if you're interested in learning more about it, it's on Wikipedia. Just okay, good Netmind. We'll do that. We did that. Uh, we did that for four years. It was fantastic. Grew the company from three to sixty employees, uh, and then we sold the business uh, at the very end of 1999. 
Yeah. Okay. To a, to a bigger group. So. Bigger, bigger, bigger. It was a publicly listed uh, company called IntelliSync. They're on the Nasdaq. Yeah. Um, I stayed on for a couple of years as their VP of Engineering, and uh, but then I started getting itchy, itchy fingers again or itchy feet, and uh, uh, and by two thousand two I decided to return to Australia. Yeah. After sixteen years in the US. Yeah. yeah. And these, like, I'm trying to sort of piece things together a bit. Obviously, I've, I can look at your your CV and your LinkedIn profile. But like, where did you where did you work when you got back to Australia? Startups. There, I naturally, after being in startups for so many years, uh, I still wanted to. Uh, I, I had a natural propensity to work in startups, so I joined. There was a there weren't a lot of startups around, and there certainly weren't many interesting startups around. Um, back in 2002. So I found one I quite liked, a company in Adelaide called Four Sticks, and uh, decided, uh, okay, I'll, I'll join them. So I wasn't a founder or anything. They were probably yeah. already, you know. So how do you sort of find a startup that you like? like? Oh, you do your research, you know. Yeah. Uh, I know I was just, by then I was Googling around, and yeah. um, uh, I, I made a trip back home to Adelaide um, in late 2000 and um, uh, did a bit of a scouting trip, you know, convinced my American wife that A, we wanted to move back to Adelaide and, and B, you know, it wasn't a crazy idea. that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just got a, a – I formed a, you know, quick idea of what some of the possibilities might be. I knew it was going to be hard to find the perfect company. Um, of course, you can always start your own, but I thought that would be – for someone who hadn't actually, you know, lived and worked in Australia as an adult, I mean, you know, my entire working career yeah. had been either in Japan or the US, I felt like the prudent thing to do would be to work for someone else for a while yeah, yeah, yeah. and just to understand things like how do boards work in Australia and, you know, how to, you know, yeah. the, the basics, yeah. you know, of, um, you know. But you were looking for a startup that um, had good funding or had was was working in a, a space you were interested in or I probably didn't do as much uh, homework as I should have I was I was quite excited to find a tech startup doing interesting things um, which which Forstix was the funding was always challenging and I I knew that going into it but I thought well look we'll we'll, we'll kind of solve that problem as we go I think if I'd if I'd said, look, the company has to have VC funding, it has to have you know a, a runway of you know for twelve months, it needs to have you know so many X customers, I wouldn't have found any company. So okay. I, I rolled my lot in with uh, Four Sticks. Turns out Four Sticks um, didn't succeed, but that's a learning experience, you know. And uh, so um, I was able to I was able to uh, acquire the assets, the IP of Four Sticks, uh, and then essentially reboot Four Sticks as a new company. That I founded, yeah, um, and uh, with an understanding of Australia and how and by then operated. I knew yeah. a lot more um, what needed to be done. Also, I I had a much clearer vision when it was when I was there as just one of the exact team of you know four six. I was just one voice. You know, I wasn't on the board. Or, um, you know, I was I was their CTO, and I said, look, these are these are things things I think we should be doing. But at the end of the day, I was one voice. When it was my company. Um, I could call the shots, mm. and uh, so I did. Yeah. And we were very focused. We decided we were going to focus entirely. See, Four Six was trying to build uh, an appliance, so it was essentially software, but actually the form factor actually is is a is a is a computer. 
um, a device, hardware device. And uh, I said, no, we don't want to do that. We'll just focus on the software. We can take a lot of cost out of it. We can actually, you know, we can have much, much, you know, better distribution. We can sell overseas as easily as we can sell yeah. uh, in Australia. And so that, that pivot, the, uh, the core technology was the same. Yeah. This is the thing. See, four six could have done this, mm. but they didn't want to, mm. uh, or not enough people wanted to. So, um, so my company, which was called NetPriva, uh, we uh, we focused entirely on the software, and we were we were successful to a point. We did struggle with uh, customer acquisition, um, but what we started to get traction with. Um, uh, companies that would wanted to o- OEM or, or private label our product. Yeah. So these are larger companies that needed our technology. They didn't really want our product. They wanted the technology. Yeah. Okay. And first there was one in the US, then there was one in Israel. And we thought, okay, so maybe that maybe the right you know business model is we basically we are essentially at, um, we're an OEM uh, yeah. supplier of uh, you know technology to other companies. Once we kind of embraced that strategy, it, it naturally led to essentially. Um, thinking about a trade sale uh, to one of those customers. In the end, we did. We sold the company to the uh, one of our Israeli, one of our customers, yeah, Israeli okay. company. That so that only took yeah. a few years. But is that about being? Is that about King being clear about your vision? And you said um, right at the start when you were a child, you kind of be able to be kind of quite firm on your perspective, but also been able to listen. So it sounds like you, yeah, you, we you had a clear vision, but you were able to pivot. Well, at first we thought that. Well, we've got a software product. We should be able to sell it, right? We've got a website, you know, online platform. But you know, they're easier said than done. I'm sure a lot of I'm sure a lot of your listeners are thinking, yeah, well, having a software product is one thing; selling it or getting it in the hands of customers is quite quite different. Turns out, yes, uh, it is. It is uh, so. But we had obviously strong interest from a certain class of customer, namely these uh, these kind of tech companies. Uh, so, yeah, we pivoted. We thought, okay, let's focus. We, we won't stop selling the product. We were still selling um, the enterprise product, uh, you know, opportunistically. For a while we dabbled with having a sales force, but sales force is very expensive, you know. Mm. These days if you're doing it again, you'd, you'd, you'd almost certainly try to develop a we, – we did attempt to do some, um, you know, an online sales model, you know, low touch, um, and perhaps – you know, in the fullness of time, we might have succeeded. I mean, yes. obviously, companies have succeeded doing that. Atlassian's a great example. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. never had a salesperson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, is that right? Wow. That's, that's well, yeah, everything is online. I mean, yeah, they, they probably yeah. have – I mean, their salespeople are more mm-hmm. strategic sales. Yeah, you know, how do we right. – you know. Um, but uh, so certainly it's possible. Um, but in the end, we pivoted and, and decided to focus on the OEM opportunity. Yeah. So yeah. being a bit flexible, yeah. And, and realizing also about that time, Google started recruiting me. Yeah, okay. So Google first started recruiting me in 2006, and uh, at first I said, "No, no, go away, go away. I'm busy. I'm doing my thing." Um, but they wore me down. Yeah. And by the end of 2006, I'd decided I wanted to uh, try Google, um, and uh, they were pitching it as essentially, "Hey, we're building a team from scratch in Australia. We need someone to grow the organization." And it's like a startup, except you've got all this funding, yeah. <laughs> uh, great coffee, <laughs> etc. Cetera, et cetera. And you're building the team, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was recruited by Google to grow their en- engineering centre in Australia, yeah. which was in Sydney. That was the only downside. So I was living in Adelaide at the time, and so I'm living in Adelaide. But we'll come to that. Uh, but in the end, um, once 
it's funny. Once I decided that NetPreva's exit strategy was a trade sale. See, I hadn't when I started NetPreva, I wasn't thinking that. I'm, 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 a lot of people, entrepreneurs, they start a business. Hopefully, they're thinking about growing the business. They're not thinking about exits. You shouldn't yeah. be thinking. You shouldn't be. Yeah. But, you know, a few years in, if an obvious exit presents itself, you know, you have to, you mm. have to consider yeah. it. It's like, okay, do I continue to grow the business? Does it make sense? For, no. Or is this an opportunity to exit and try doing something else? So uh, I grappled with that for a little while. And in the end, I said, no, this is a chance for me to exit, make some money for myself, for my investors and for my employees. Uh, and these are the, these long-suffering employees from yeah. four six that had lost all yeah. of their sh- you know shares in four six. So you were able to retain. I retained. Um, I retained six of the employees, which was only a, you know, probably a fraction. But it, yeah. but um, again, we were rebooting the company. So yeah, I embraced this opportunity to sell the business. And then it's funny. Once that had crystallized, I I kind of lost interest in NetPriva. It's like yeah. well, it's it's just yeah. a transaction now. I had a chat with my uh, my head of sales who was US based, and I said to his name was Todd. I said, Todd, I, now that we've decided to sell the business, I just I want you to basically take the reins here on out. I'm you know it's it's a it's a transaction. That's what yeah. you do. Yeah, That's yeah. not what I do. Uh, and uh, which he did. So yeah. he basically, I'm obviously still there, but it was really. Um, the um, the sale was driven very much um, yeah. um, by him, and uh, and then uh, I, f- I focused then on you know the next opportunity, which as yeah. it turned out was Google. Was there apprehension about joining Google? Yes, at what, multiple what, levels. Yeah, in what way? Well, one, uh, it, not in Adelaide. It would, mm. I mean, yeah. and uh, not that not that was there. Were there? I'm not, not I think putting things a bit philosophically or yes, what it means. Yeah, actually, or based in, in fact, the, US the, the, or? the geographical uh, uncertainty was probably the lesser consideration. Because I'd lived in Sydney as a young person briefly, uh, and so I thought well, I can live in Sydney if I have to. But I had a I had a young family. We just re- re- we'd only relocated from California a few years earlier. They were just getting settled into Australia and Australian schools. My beautiful American wife Susie. I didn't want to inflict another move on them when it only just moved. Um, didn't seem fair, and so um, so there was that. I said, okay, I'll commute. People do it. And uh, but I think it's, uh, the bigger uh, uncertainty was philosophical. Like I'm going from a startup to a, what is really a tech giant. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Google 2002 was still a lot smaller than it is today. Um, they had a tiny engineering team. They had fewer than 20 engineers in Australia. And, and um, that had... That had started with an acquisition they made of an Australian startup uh, just a few years earlier, okay. but then had grown very, very slowly. So I was brought in to essentially consolidate and grow. So on my watch, which was 11 years, we basically grew from 20 engineers to about 650 engineers. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, and that was very exciting, and uh, I enjoyed it, uh, but I did not enjoy the commute. <laughs> Oh, so you was your family were based in Adelaide? They were still and, living here, yeah, and I was commuting. With, with the, had he, like, obviously that not wanting to uproot your family and move to Sydney. It, it just so were you kind of flying in on? At, at first, it was fly Monday in on Monday, Friday and fly out on Friday, which yeah. is pretty brutal. Uh, well, the only thing worse, I knew people that flew out on Sunday night, which I just thought was horrible because mm. it's starting to take away from your weekend. Right. Um, at first, I would get that red eye on 
on Monday morning, that 6 a.m. flight. Uh, and, and then I realized it's pointless. The engineers don't even get into the office until 10. Why am I getting there at 9? <laughs> so I started taking a more civilized 7 a.m. flight. Mm. Uh, but the big, uh, the revolution in my lifestyle was video conferencing. And, and Google was a major, major, you know, proponent and early adopter of um, video conferencing technology. So within a few years, I was able to carve out days when I could work from home, but still video conference. And a lot of my meetings weren't with Sydney folks. They were with folks in, in Mountain View, California. Mm. Mountain View, California didn't care if I was a video yeah, a screen yeah, okay. in Adelaide. Or a screen in Sydney. It was still a screen. So you didn't so, need to clock on and be there physically. Yeah. yeah. So what? At for, for a few years, it really was Monday through Friday, you know. Uh, in, and then um, probably, you know, four or five years in, it started to get a lot more flexible. And, uh, you know, if I needed to be home on a, on a Thursday night or I needed to go out on a Tuesday instead of a Monday, I could start to uh, – and I think, yeah, that made a huge difference, just that little bit of flexibility. Is that about you saying – I think this is what I need to do. Or yes. is that about oh, the, tr- trusting? Well, Google wasn't Google anyway. wasn't offering it, but but they weren't they weren't preventing it. Google wasn't really a big um, Google's culture, which is it's it is an amazing company in so many ways. Um, but that one of the things I loved about Google is they it's a very um, it's a very um, positive, you know supportive culture and so if they would understand it's like yeah you've got to balance things so if you need to do this and having a you know not just a supportive company culture but having supportive management helps a lot too my my boss was a senior vp in 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 mountain view i mean yeah. he personally didn't care where he was providing a providing um you know the the goals are getting kicked. Mm. You know, are we hiring the people we need to hire? Yes. Yeah. Uh, are we doing the things we need to do in the community? Yes. Da da da. da. So, um, um, so it it, it I, I I probably can't. I mean, this is a. I mean, technology. This will kind of lead to come, some of my thinking about Oz Ocean. Technology is a double edged sword. I mean, it, it, technology can do wonderful things, but in in the wrong hands, it can do horrible things too. But this with video conferencing, there's always mm. it's just a wonderful thing. It just it just you know gives people flexibility to kind of do things on their terms and on their time. The downside is you have to decline. You know, video conferences at seven p.m. at night yeah. wasn't always possible. When I was working with some of my European colleagues, I was on calls at eleven p.m. just to make Berlin happy. Or, mm-hmm. um, but you you know you manage those. Yeah. Uh, I was part of a, a, a group of, um, you know, um, a group of execs at one point where, and because Google was a global company, I was uh, I was the um, the APAC uh, member of this this group, and but all my other peers were either in North America or in Europe, mm. um, you know, Israel or Europe or East Coast of the states, or the West Coast, and I was definitely the odd one out, and. But as a courtesy, every fifth meeting they would do it in my time zone, but that was, <laughs> which was nice. Yeah, yeah. But it still meant a lot of meetings at weird times. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'm about to move on to Oz Ocean, so I want to allow enough time for us to talk about sure. that. But it's it's a really it's a, it's it's maybe a complex thing to go, um, to, to answer. But was there an observation of the inner workings of a Google of? Um, of why it works well, why an organisation is there an essence about why why an organisation like that works well? Yeah, my biggest observation about why Google works well is uh, they have they've got, they've uh, the founders have done a very good job articulating uh, 
their principles and their values as an organization and instilling those values uh, throughout the organization. So, And it comes down to careful hiring. Every person you hire is a future ambassador for your values and your principles. Every single hire is critical. There's yeah. no there's no non there's no hires who aren't important, and there's very high hiring standards. But but it, you know that's in part to maintain uh, you know their cultural standards. Obviously, they're they're looking for technical excellence too, or you know. If, if you're hiring someone on the technical side of the team, you need to be strong technically. If you're hiring someone in sales, you need to be strong in, in sales. But but on top of that, you've got to be someone who could be seen to be um, a, a good cultural fit for the organisation. So we would often um, interview brilliant people, but we would not hire them because we just didn't think they were going to get on with others. Mm. And so, so how do you assess, what's an example of how you assess somebody of having a good cultural fit? It's uh, there's no. It's not really anything that's formulaic. I mean, uh, what we would do at Google, we would have uh, at least four interviews and at least one of those interviews, whether explicitly or implicitly, the interview would be told your primary, your primary goal in this meeting is to assess culture fit. You can still ask some technical questions, but it's not important what the candidate says, but it's how they say it, how they communicate with you. Um, do they look like someone who's going to work well um, as a team, they look like someone who's going to be respectful of their teammates. So there would always be at least one interview where there were sp- specific goals around trying to assess um, fit. I mean, technical fit's actually the easier thing to do. You know, yes, you can program. Yes, you can design. Tick, tick, tick. Culture fit's hard. I mean, there's no there's no silver bullet though. It's it's uh, you develop. You do develop certain questions, certain open ended questions. They tend to be questions. You know, can you you know can you tell me about a situation where you had to uh, you disagreed wildly, wildly with someone, and you know how you went around, how you went about resolving that? Open-ended questions like this, just to kind of try to get some insight into how the candidate might think about conflicts and things. Um, so yeah, you it's somewhat structured in that sense, uh, but the the individual questions you ask will vary, and it would depend on the candidate too. And is that an, a number of staff? <clears throat> Interviewing a candidate is that? Oh well, <clears throat> we would. Um, if you're, I can speak most. Um, I guess most clearly about technical interviewing. Being on the engineering side, uh, all interviewers in a technical interview would be technical people, but some of them would be tasked with different types of assessing different types of things. So we would typically at Google have an interview because coding. Coding is our lingua franca at Google. If you can't code, it's yeah. like you can't speak English. Yeah, okay. It's not just a, oh, I'll pick it up. No, 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 no. Coding is how we interact with people, is how we communicate. So there would always be a coding um, question or interview, I should say. Uh, invariably, uh, there would be design-type questions just to try to understand how people go about problem-solving and, and, and designing. Uh, and then there would be, uh, interviews, one or more interviews, trying to assess those other kind of, I guess, um, softer skills, you know, people skills yeah. and attributes. Um, but the interviewers would always be other technical folks, so the candidate would not know if this was an interview about coding or or designing or culture because all interviews invariably touched on something technical. It's just that the emphasis would be a bit different. So even when you're being interviewed about, or oh, how would you go about designing this, how you interact and how you explain. A lot of candidates don't realise that 
it's actually okay to ask questions in interviews or yeah, I don't okay. know everything. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's um, and that's also quite telling because actually in the real world you certainly don't know everything, do you? <laughs> so let's dive deep into <clears throat> Oz Ocean. Excuse the, the pun. But what, tell yeah, I'd love to dive into it. Yeah. What's, what's Oz Ocean? What's well, it? so after working in technology for decades, uh, always for um, for-profit organisations, albeit, you know, whether they were um, – tech giants or startups, my entire career up until I was Ocean was about using tech to make a product and to make some money, you know. And, yeah, and, you know, that's okay, you know. Entrepreneurs have to, you know, return a profit. We have shareholders. We have, uh, you know, we, we, we run businesses. Um, but along the way, it dawned on me that technology can and should be a force for good in the world, not just for a profit. And uh, so I combine this this kind of insight uh, with the fact that I've always loved the oceans. I've been a I've been a, a water rat since I was a kid, growing up down at Brighton Beach, and uh, love snorkeling every- and like yeah, everything. If you you know, I love diving, snorkeling. Windsurfing, kite, you had, sailing. How long have you had just, you have got a scuba license? Or? I do. Yeah. How yeah. long have you had that? For? Oh, I got I got my I got my certification um, a year or two after moving to California. So yeah, yeah way, okay. way back in the eighties. Yeah. So, uh, and in fact, uh, we'll, we'll touch on that actually because uh, I learned to dive in the chilly waters of Monterey Bay. Yeah. And uh, most people would say, oh, frigid, frigid, you know, Alaskan currents, pretty cold. Which it is, but the nice thing about learning to dive in a cold place like Monterey is everywhere else is warm by comparison. So, okay. <laughs> so, so I don't, you know, I, you know, well, I, I do winter dives in Adelaide. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think anything of it. Big deal. I know a lot of there's a lot of fair weather divers that would never dive anywhere but the tropics, but they're missing out. We'll, we can touch on that mm-hmm. again. So I had this kind of this. I'd always had this kind of love of the oceans, and 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 my career was obviously in this kind of this tech. Uh, this, this tech world, and so Oz Ocean was bringing these two things together again, and uh, how we can use, how we can help our oceans through tech. So our mission is just that, how helping our oceans through technology. It's a very broad mission, uh, and so the next step was trying to kind of unpack that a bit. Okay, so we've got technology, we've got we've got the oceans. What are what are the things we can do where we can start to get some get some runs on the board quickly because we don't want to be you know, developing something that's going to be incredibly expensive or uh, incredibly time-consuming. The other thing that kind of came along was this maker movement, low-cost, you know, electronic hobby electronics like, you know, the Raspberry Pi and, and the ESP826 chips, you know, like a, uh, and, of course, you've got the same technology in a high-end smartphone that you can buy for about 10 bucks in a Raspberry Pi or, yeah. or 30 bucks for the Pi Raspberry, you know, um, Pi Zero is seven dollars, five dollars. So we realise that there's an opportunity now to develop ocean monitoring technology at a much, much lower cost than has ever been done before. So that's what we've we've started with at Oz Ocean. We're developing very low cost, as in orders of magnitude cheaper than the the type of commercial products you'll buy today, um, using essentially low cost electronics and um, and software. If we, we try to do as much, uh, or we try to put as much, much of the functionality in the software as possible to keep the costs out of the hardware. 
And so we've started to, we've started uh, to design and build an ocean monitoring platform. Uh, it's a general purpose platform where you can plug in any sensor you want. Uh, what we've found is the, um, the, the, the sensor that everyone seems to be crying out for is not the, is not the typical sensor you might think of, but it's video. Okay. Um, and video is like the Swiss army knife of, of um, sensors in the sense that it's obviously video information, but buried in that information, there's information about the environment, there's information about the species in that video, um, there's information about the flora, um, seagrass, kelp, whatever. There's information about water quality. You can actually do turbidity analysis out of video. So it's video provides a platform for doing all kinds of things. Best of all, though, video has a completely non-scientific goal as well, and that's engagement. Mm-hmm. Video is mm-hmm. how you can get people to but engage. But that wasn't what you expected. To no, start with. So no. What did, what did you expect the census uh, to start with? I had uh, marine biologists telling me uh, we, we want to do video and audio monitoring because we want to see what's happening. Um, but then I started chatting with a few other nonprofits. They said the video is nice for the science, but guess what? We need it just to engage. We need mm-hmm. we need video to show off to people that there are amazing things under mm-hmm. the water. And so it was. And you think that the, like the, mm-hmm. the the general population across the world doesn't appreciate what's below the surface? Yes. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. I think. In general, we are we're a terrestrial species. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the o- the ocean is an alien environment. I mean, some of us spend time in the water for sure. Most most people, you know, their uh, involvement, their understanding of the ocean is probably about a hundred meters out. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a few people that you know they do water sports and things, but the vast majority of people um, don't don't really. Um, I would say. Appreciate might be too strong, but the, I understand somewhere between appreciation and understanding. There's a there's a lack, uh, a lack of it. Uh, I've heard the term ocean blindness, mm. where we have a certain blindness towards the ocean because um, it's just not our thing. Again, we're we're land animals. It, it's there, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, uh, but it is invisible. I've, I've done a little bit of uh, yeah. snorkeling, and you and you see the water, and it's just like the water. And you go, you look under there, you go, yeah. oh my god, there's this. So many fish the, and an amazing species underneath The marine environment is staggering. I mean, who needs to go to Mars mm-hmm. when you can go dive, you know, off Seacliff Reef or mm-hmm. somewhere off the coast of, uh, you know, Rapid Bay or Kangaroo Island? I mean, we've got remarkable underwater species that you could, you could barely imagine. And the incredible thing is we're still discovering new species. Only only uh, earlier, late last year, they discovered 400 new deepwater species in the Great Australian Bight. 400 new species! Mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably thousands and thousands yet to be discovered. Um, so it's an incredible environment. And if you look at the uh, the great diversity of species, I mean, you know, there's weird-looking things that you, you wouldn't dream of, mm-hmm. you know, that such a thing would actually exist, and yet they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the, the, other, the other awakening, um, and I, I plead ignorance as well, I didn't really appreciate southern Australia's marine environment. Okay. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say it because I, I dived at Monterey Bay and I, and I dived with the giant kelps and, and I knew that there were interesting temperate marine habitats. Um, but when I came back to South Australia, it took me a while before I realised, wow, we are sitting on some stunning 
marine life and some mm. marine environments here in our own state and, and more broadly um, southern Australia. They've, um, they've now coined the term the Great Southern Reef. It's actually not one reef. It's a series of interconnected rocky reefs that spans southern Australia. And uh, it's, uh, it's remarkable. And most mm. people don't know it's, yeah. it's there, let alone you know, the great diversity of marine animals. So the, the senses that Ozocean um, builds, are they, I, I guess, physical senses that you will have located at different, different key spots? Or are they yes. mobile senses? Uh, or are they, like, where, yeah, that's what, a great question. Uh, a lot of people, when I first started... Uh, talking about what we were going to do, people said, oh, you're going to get into drones. You're going to start doing, you know, um, mobile-based, uh, you know, data collection. I said, well, we, we, we might, um, but, but drone technology is still relatively expensive. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, underwater drones, mm. quite expensive. Uh, and I think the time will come when we will look at drones. We, we, we own a couple of drones and we, we play, I would say we play with them. But uh, in again, this is where getting some real world or customer feedback. So I had a I had a some conversations with some real marine biologists, of which I clearly am not. And they said, Alan, actually, you know what we really need is um, long term reef monitoring. We need we need equipment that can stay out in the ocean for months and years on end, and and collect vast amounts of data from the same. You know, so you're talking about video data, all of the above, yeah. Whether it's too bit of so the sort of so, so would you have mm. sensors to water? Is it water quality? Is it, is yeah, it, well, there's a, the water chemistry. Uh, there are sensors that measure water chemistry. There are sensors that measure turbidity. Right now, we uh, we purchase sensors where we don't yet have our own. I've just ordered some, you know, turbidity sensors from China. They're not cheap, even coming from China. Uh, but and one day I would I would like to figure out how we could take the cost out of mm. one of those sensors. But right now. We're trying to combine the technology part of our mission, you know, develop low-cost technology, but the other part is helping our ocean. So it's, it's that balancing act between actually doing things with what's around today. So we've focused – I mean, our sensor development has focused primarily on uh, low-cost temperature, low-cost uh, – so underwater, t- uh, you know, sea surface temperature, because you get very, very low-cost waterproof uh, temperature sensors. Obviously, video, uh, audio – uh, and above above surface, you know, normal, you know, temperature type, um, barometric type, you know, humidity type sensors as well. But the platform is is open in that we can plug in new sensors yeah, okay. over time. Um, the uh, and of course we can also add if if a if a partner comes to us and says, look, we'd we'd like to add a sensor, and they supply the sensor. We, for example, we've got a shark researcher who has supplied. Um, acoustic recorders, uh, and we just mount them on our on our platform. So oh, I should explain. We have a little platform at sea. It's yep. called it's called uh, the rig. It's a uh, um, we refer to them as a sea surface platform. So this is a little um, a little floating platform that's mm-hmm. tethered to a fixed location, yep. and it has solar panels and battery storage. So that provides the physical platform, and the sensors are attached to that. The rigs then communicate back to shore over the normal 4G network, usually. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like your customers, for want of a better term, customers, mm. so your audience is broad, so that, that engagement with 
with wider community audiences sounds like that. That's that's obviously an audience out there, but your customers are often researchers or marine biologists. Yeah, so they've I, got I, an issue they need to solve, and they're looking to you. For that's the evolving, to do actually. It. Interesting. Uh, uh, at first, I thought. So yes, um, we have um, our partners are really uh, broadly two two different classes. One are researchers themselves that are looking. Um, they just, you know, taking advantage of our platform to do interesting science. Um, and then uh, second class are uh, non-profits. Um, so mo- we've got um, partners like the Nature Conservancy, uh, Estuary Care Foundation, Kangaroo Island Dolphin Watch. So there are um, other non-profits. And Oz Ocean is a non-profit, and I would be remiss to say if, uh, if I neglected to mention that we are a non-profit and we do uh, accept tax-deductible donations, ozocean.org. But anyway, (laughs) Uh, but we work with other non-profits because most non-profits don't have a good handle on technology. So we help, if they come to us with a problem, for example, KI Dolphin Watch came to us and said, we'd like to do some whale movement monitoring off the coast of KI. Could you help us? We said, yes, we don't have acoustic monitors um, that we can supply the floating platforms. They said, great, we'll get the monitors, you supply the platform. Okay. So we can, again, take a bit of the friction. So you work in collaboration and yeah. partnership. And- but there's a new group I'm really excited about. The third group are, are schools, yeah. and we've just started a school program which we call Network Blue. It's very much about networking schools and getting schools involved in, in ocean science, um, obviously, there's a big STEM component to it, but it's not just STEM. It's also about uh, outdoor ed, getting students involved in actually not just building the rigs, uh, which you can build in a classroom. So we've, we've had two okay. schools build rigs. Yeah, wow. uh, you can typically build a rig in an afternoon. Um, a group of about six students can make a rig, uh, except for the electronics. That's a bit extra. And then um, we've got two schools right now. We've got... Um, We've got Emmanuel College and Portside Christian College have both built rigs that are getting deployed out into the oceans in the coming months. And we've got a third school we're doing later on this term, Yankalilla Area School down on the Florio. So um, it's very early days, but uh, we're hoping to get uh, we're hoping to get Network Blue into more schools over the next, you know, so like next year or two. You've answered it to to a certain extent, but uh, a a bit of a cheeky question, I guess, is why do why do our oceans matter? Our oceans matter simply because they're 71% of the planet's surface. Uh, there's so much we still need to learn about the oceans. I mean, uh, that, that term ocean blindness, I keep coming back to that because we, we take the oceans for granted and we shouldn't. Mm. Uh, we really do need to spend much, much more understanding what's happening. So that's why we've decided to focus on the ocean monitoring pl- uh, problem first. Um, and we're focusing on a subset of monitoring. We're focusing on near shore or coastal monitoring because to design equipment for the deep ocean, that's obviously a whole new mm. uh, you know, set of hurdles to overcome. But that's I, in your mind for the future? Oh, yeah. absolutely. I would like to have floating rigs that can go out there, deploy them into the Great Australian Bight, semi-autonomous, absolutely. But uh, in the spirit of uh, being a scrappy startup, you start with what you, you – know, you get some runs on the board, get some credibility, and then grow from there. Yeah. And what are your biggest concerns in terms of the ocean, your observations? Oh, and obviously it's the, the Oz, Oz Ocean's obviously come from um, some well, concerns, I, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm concerned that we're going to destroy much of what makes the oceans special before we know 
what what is even out there. Where you know, um, the oceans are obviously warming up. The oceans are acidifying. I mean, obviously, the plight of coral reefs around the world is well known. But it's not just coral uh, coral reefs that are suffering. I mean, ocean ecosystems everywhere are are under stress, um, and. because the average person looks out at their their, at their local beach and says, "Oh, that looks pretty. That looks okay." It's a uh, we don't re- we don't realize just um, how much uh, how threatened the oceans are. So we we need to be we need to be doing something about that. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so ozocean.org, is that right? Yes. Oh, cool. So we started off towards the start. Started off with um, you as a young boy. Um, loving science and et cetera. Mm. What, what would you say to young people about how to maximise the chance of a successful life or successful career? They could be young as in kids or it could be young as in sort of early 20s. It doesn't really matter. Or young at heart. I, would, at I, heart. I look, the advice is the same. Uh, be curious, never stop learning and, and follow your dreams. Excellent. Good. Thank you. Good place to stop. Thank, Thank you. Alan. Pleasure. To comment on today's show, do so via Square Holes or myself on Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone. For more on today's show, other episodes and articles on all things human-centred, customer-focused, innovation and entrepreneurship, go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening. Uru. Uru.